This is Hearts of Oak Podcast. Free speech, religious disagreement, children's rights, and open and free discussion on any topic are bedrock to a democratic free society, and we seek to promote and champion these basic rights. Join us. Let's keep the conversation going. Hello, Hearts of Oak, and welcome to another interview with Avi Yemeni joining us once again. And we're looking at his book, A Rebel from the Start, Avi Yemeni setting the record straight, and there is a lot to set straight. He has been in the target hairs of the media, of the government, of the legal system. And we obviously go into his background, uh, big family, trouble, difficult background, uh, and how he pulled his life together, partially through the military, uh, joining the Israeli military, and how that really made him. And then all the journalism side, obviously working with Tommy and then working with Rebel, with Ezra, and how he's been a voice of reason during the COVID tyranny. Uh, he's been my go-to source, certainly for Australian issues, uh, and he has been fearless. He has faced uh, punishment for that. We look in the legal battles that he's faced, not only the, the media attacking his family and how he's had to defend them and fight for his kids, but also how he's gone through the courts and got the uh, Victorian authorities to issue an apology for how they treat him as he was reporting on the news. Lots, I know you'll love listening to Avi, who is a, a little Aussie dynamo. Avi Yemeni, it is wonderful to have you Back with skin. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, mate. Not at all. Uh, it's been ages, but obviously uh, you have a book out, which is telling your story. A rebel from the start. Have you Emily setting the record straight? And uh, a lot's been written about you. Uh, you've been the target of many attacks, and um, there's a lot to set straight. Uh, it is available in the UK. It is available anywhere. Uh, on the website, but also uh, directly on Amazon. Uh, those are your handles on Twitter and rebelfromthestart.com. You can buy it directly there or, as I said, on Amazon or anywhere else. Uh, Avi, first of all, can I ask you why you put pen to paper? You're busy. You do so much stuff. You seem to be everywhere, uh, filming finding stories, uh, working hard for Rebel there in Australia. Uh, it takes a lot of time and discipline, I guess, to set everything else aside and, and actually put pen to paper. So what made you actually write the book? Yeah, absolutely. Look, um, writing is difficult for me, especially I found it really hard, but it was a project that I set myself to because for so many years now, probably six, seven years, they've been writing about me. Um and, you know, over the last few years, especially the last four or five years, some of those issues I wasn't even able to um, answer. So you had these people dragging my name through the mud, um, smearing me and whilst knowing I can't even respond. So finally, when I could respond to those issues, I thought I'm going to write my entire story from beginning to end or till current um, to essentially set the record straight. So it's called A Rebel from the Start because that's pretty much, as you'll read from day one, um, I was pretty much a rebel. And uh, the subtitle is Setting the Record Straight because I'm finally, you finally get the chance to actually hear my story from me, um, somebody who's actually lived the entire story instead of people that want to cherry pick little bits that they've 
um, manage to find that suits their version of me that they want people they want to portray. Mm. Uh, right back to the beginning, you're um, obviously with the first chapter, and it does fit you, a born attention seeker. <laughs> and you, you, you're a big character. You uh, enjoy the limelight, and you, your videos show you, you kind of use that. Uh, to your advantage, you, you play on that and you connect with the audience uh, using that. But, I mean, big, really big family born into. Uh, you had issues with many things. Do you want to me touch on that? Because uh, your story is a story of actually struggling in areas and then actually changing your life and turning it around. Yeah, it's good. Look, you know what I find interesting about this conversation is I can tell you've actually read it. Um, a lot of people that are talking about my book online, especially, they haven't obviously haven't read it because they point to parts where they're trying to embarrass me and shame me on issues that I'm like, dude, I talk all about it. Yeah, that's how I started. I grew up in an ultra-Orthodox family. I was born the night my family moved to Melbourne. I'm the 10th child of 17 children. The need for attention was probably started off as a survival mechanism and into my, you know, adult life. I, at times it was, it certainly helped me. At other times it got me into a bit of trouble. Um, and I guess probably the same is true within my media career. It's, I do enjoy it. I'm not going to sit here and pretend like I don't enjoy the limelight. I love it. Um and sometimes it gets me into trouble and at other times uh, that, um, you know, willingness and happiness to be in front of the camera when others may not be um, works to my – works to what I'm doing, to my job. Ted, but you – one of the chapters, and I remember when this was happening, one of the chapters uh, was guilty of wanting my kids. And yeah. I, I, mean, I I can vividly remember different – parts of your life played publicly uh you're getting so much flack for so many things but but part of it was um you kind of personal life and and your kids and when when the media bring in family it is particularly um hurtful uh tell us about that yeah look those were those are one of the issues that, that i'm referring to where the media cherry picked and that the media sat there through um my criminal trial and they knew what was going on and they decided to pick um, certain aspects to report in a really outlandish way um, that made it easy, uh, you know, any rational um, good person would hate, you know, when you run a headline, Avi Yamini found or pleads guilty to um, assaulting ex-wife. It's pretty horrible stuff. Now, they left out all the context around it. Some of it you're not allowed to report, but other parts of it you are um, certainly allowed to report. And so I think sometimes when you know the whole story, then, and if you're not allowed to report the parts that gives context, then uh, maybe it's the kind of story you should let the private life be the private life, unless somebody is really a bad person. Look, I had to deal with that smear for years um, silently. And, you know, it's probably one of those things, as they say, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Having to shut up is not in my nature, um, but it taught me to shut up and just cop it and to learn that, you know, no matter what they say about you, if you know the truth and um, 
it's they're not going to get to define you. And now after so many years, I get to say, I get to have my say about that specific issue. And the, the, the truth of that story is I've never hit a woman in my life, let alone my ex-wife. I'm just not that kind of person. It was a relationship breakdown at the end when I, in fact, it was when I started a new relationship that this whole, um, that this whole thing came up and that, uh, you know, there's this kind of formula that women use and I'm not alone. I know that there are many men, especially here in Australia, and I imagine probably also where you are, where the system, because of historically um, the way that, the awful way that so many women were treated, that the pendulum has swung all the way the other way, that now um, a man is guilty until proven innocent. And the problem with that is when you throw children into the mix, suddenly you're left with um, having to defend yourself but also trying to get your kids. Um, and so, you know, if I if my kids weren't involved in all that, then I would happily, I'm not a person that's afraid of court. You can, you know, there's a lot of things you can say about me, but I ain't scared of a courtroom and I would happily fight to clear my name on things. But as soon as you attach my kids to it, so in – short, while you have an open domestic violence case, you ain't getting your kit. So you have two ways of shutting down a domestic violence matter. One is plead guilty to what was essentially a summary offense. So the lowest level of offending, the lowest crime um, that comes with the penalty of a fine. Um, even if you didn't commit it, plead guilty to it, close that domestic violence matter and get your kids, or you can spend a couple of years trying to clear your name. And then whether you clear it or not, at the end of it, you can fight to see your kids again. To me, it's a no brainer. You know, if I went back in time, I'd plead guilty to the same crime again, because my kids matter more than my pride. That's essentially what this became because, because I knew it was going to play out in public. It was whether and, I, you know, I didn't even weigh it up because at the end of the day, it didn't matter to me. All I wanted was my kids and not only for my sake, but for their sake. But if, you know, if you have to put it between your pride and your children, I think any good parent would pick their children. And I did it then and I would do it again. It is sad that we live in a society that that's where it's become. And I know I know that some of the intentions behind the way the system was structured was um, was well intended. It was to protect vulnerable women. But unfortunately, I know in Australia that's true and I imagine where you are as well it is a system that is abused by vindictive ex-partners. Um, and in my case, it was when I started a new relationship and you can read the full story in, in my book, but here I am today um, for the first time being able to tell people, no, what you hear about me. And that's the thing that I noticed over this period is I had people that have followed me for years and they would get on, you know, when, when my detractors would attack me with those labors, labels and those smears and call me all sorts of horrible names, the one thing I am not, um, you'd have supporters who would either – defend me by minimizing domestic violence or, you know, saying you haven't heard the other side of the story, which I guess that's probably the most accurate or saying it didn't have whatever. Um, 
and you also had a lot of people that probably followed my work and thought, oh, he has a a nasty past. I think for the first time now people can actually read my entire story and make up their mind for themselves instead of listening to either reporters who want to see nothing nothing less than my complete uh, destruction or the other side, my political opponents, people who view me as the enemy. And remember, before they had that false domestic violence, uh, they I was the Jewish Nazi. So these are people that will use anything to try um, bring down the person because they can't argue the message. And, you know, the, to my supporters, I've been grateful to see them fighting for me and, and, uh, and even even when – a lot of people would have taken my silence as an admission of guilt. There were those out there trying to defend me using without any information, without any information. But now people can know the truth and know that, no, you haven't either been defending a domestic violence abuser, you haven't, uh, you haven't been defending somebody that has uh, at least, I have a past and we talk about my past in the book but just not like that. And, you know, I I wouldn't feel, I know how so many must have felt because I wouldn't have felt comfortable defending or following somebody with um, potentially potential domestic violence, you know, offences and or somebody that's horrible to women. I wouldn't want to be known as that. So this has been, for me, a big weight off my chest and my shoulders. Tell because the media... Um, and I've come to the conclusion they are scum, and I, I didn't actually think I would use terms as strong as that to describe media politicians. Uh, but what? Because th- this was even before you were with Rebel. Uh, this was, yeah, this was before that time. So what? What was it that you had done that so pissed off the media? Because they they went for you, and uh, who who the hell cares about some guy called Avi in a court? And yet. They they had you in their crosshairs. Yeah, look, look, aligning yourself and working with uh, people, enemies of the state. Um, I think uh, been on your show a number of times. That probably didn't help. Um, and look, anyone that dares to speak out about issues that goes against the grain, against the narrative, is going to become a target by. Um, those that it threatens. And, yeah, I, I understand I'm a massive threat to the mainstream establishment, the legacy media, as just as much as I'm a big threat to the um, political class. You know, those that have always traditionally held all the power do not want to see the rise of uncontrollable attention seekers like me. Oh, fair point, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I want to ask you about military because um, I I wanted to join the Air Force. It didn't happen, but I enjoyed kind of my time, uh, University Air Squadron, all that being drilled into you. And I have friends who it's been the making of them in the military. Um, and that seemed to be you. How did you end up going all the way to Israel and join the military? Uh, why and how did that kind of set you up for the future? Look, I think I talk about it in the book, but it was, uh, I was always, it, it was kind of in the back of my mind. Uh, I was, I had two older brothers that served and obviously my mum's whole family's there. 
My uncle died in the in, in serving in the IDF, so you know, it's deep rooted. But um, for me, at that time in my life, I I was actually I signed up. They didn't know that, but I signed up from rehab. I was just getting off heroin, and I was trying to sort my life out. And I knew that I had to kind of make some dramatic change not to fall into the same habit. So I, I chose the, um, in fact, I did go to the, um, one of the, I forgot what they call them, the Australian army, uh, information sessions or whatever. And I remember at the time they were talking about, uh, applying and, and criminal histories. And, you know, I spent my whole teenage years in and out of the justice system. So I realized this was going to be a bit uh, a much harder road to go down. And then on top of that, I when I thought of the Australian Army, I thought, well, if I am deployed, I'm going to be fighting someone else's war, whereas if I can go and join the Israeli Army, at least I'll be fighting um, to protect my own family, my own people. My So um, I signed up from, the, from rehab and uh, the rest is history. <laughs> And I certainly had an, an interesting um, service. Um, I want to jump onto your me- the media side because obviously um, I first came across you when when you're working with Tommy with TR News, uh, and then you moved over and started with uh, with Rebel. I think and I'm still wearing his t-shirt. You're still, uh, <laughs> yeah, I see that. Um, I actually caught up. Uh, um, with Ezra the other week, he was in London, so he had a, a good catch up. But on kind of the rebel has been perfectly placed, I guess, with all the the chaos the last three years, and you've been right in the middle of that in one of the worst countries uh, for the restrictions and controls and mind control of at every level that we've seen the last three years. How is how is that played out? Because it, it was you, you weren't expecting a worldwide lockdown, but Certainly, Rebel has grown massively in Canada uh, on the back of being the one free speech news channel that will speak out, um, and you've been able to do that in Australia. Uh, tell us about how that has kind of panned out over the last three years. Yeah, it's interesting. So I joined Rebel officially. I, I did a couple of uh, gigs even while I was working for Tommy as fr- or freelance um, up until then, but I joined on the 3rd of September of 2020 it was during a lockdown and the 5th of September, 2020, uh, I went to report on a lockdown protest that was, and, and, and I was <laughs> taken down to the ground by police. And, um, you know, it was, it was a bizarre time to be doing what we're doing. And, but it just set, it was just so perfect. It was my second day at rebel and I was, arrested, <laughs> surrounded and arrested. I thought they were actually joking at the time when the commanding officer kind of came up to me. I thought he was bantering and I just couldn't believe what was happening. But it set me up for the rest, you know, the rest of what we were doing or rebel in Australia. It just, it put, it really put us on the map um, with regards to being on the front line of citizen journalism in a time where the mainstream media had just lost their way. They were not speaking truth to power. They were actually just regurgitating the uh, the government's official lines, and they were happy there, cheering on the lockdowns, cheering on every single crazy um, 
totalitarian uh, move that the government was making. And then you had little me and um, and then also at the time you had somebody like Rukshan who were in his studio. So don't don't judge uh, Rukshan. Rukshan actually does good work. He just failed in his studio. <laughs> He's sitting behind the screen laughing at me. No, so you had, the, you know, even Rukshan. Rukshan was nobody before then. He wasn't working for anything. He was a wedding photographer, and I think he was pretty average at that too. And then <laughs> he's laughing by idea. So for those of you on that side of the world, Rukshan's actually not. You, you actually can read about Rukshan in the book. Um, but, it, it, you know, that was my journey through Rebel and, and I think uh, Rebel was perfectly placed because they, unlike when I worked for Tommy, Rebel had the ability and the means and the will and the teams to to take on these fights. So when I worked with Tommy, um, probably it, w- it, w- it was probably a few months before, except actually it was, it was January 2020 when I was first arrested and that was while I was still working for Tommy and there was nothing I could really do to fight back, even though I knew it was unlawful, the arrest. There was nothing I could do because Tommy was having his own dramas and, it, he, you know, he was fighting his own, putting out his own fires. And then – and the cops thought, didn't realise that I'd signed up with Rebel because that was actually my first official day in the field for Rebel. So they thought they will take me down and get rid of me, give me a move-on order and I'll just have to cop it like I did the last time. But little did they know that um, – I had joined Rebel and Rebel's first response was sue him. We're suing him. And we did end up not only suing him for that one, we sued him for that. We sued him for the the one when I worked for Tommy and then one more that they still thought they could get away with it um, uh, within that year, I think it was. Oh, uh, no, 20, January 2021. So for three arrests and they ended up having to, you know, issue that groveling apology. How is that? I, I can imagine Ezra jumping up and down with glee when you're arrested. You're thinking, oh, oh crap. And he's thinking, yes, because he's thinking of that, uh, how the audience see that and making that story. But yeah, I'm mean, going through. I don't think, court- I, look, I don't think he gets excited. I think, I think one of the things that I've learned from um, Ezra is he's always said, look at every situation and make lemon, uh, make lemonade from lemons, you know, just, turn it into a positive. And that's the truth is when you're, when you're taken down like that and an authorities standing over you with a boot on your neck and trying to intimidate and scare, and most people would, would, would cave. In fact, if I wasn't with rebel, I'd probably be stuck and would have to. So we look at those situations and we say, hold on, how can we flip this script? How can we turn it on them? And that's exactly what we did. And not only does it, it ended up backfiring so badly for the state because not only did we fight and win, but them acting like that did the one thing they were trying to avoid. And why were they targeting me? Why did they want me to move out of that situation? Because they didn't want the world to see. They didn't want our things to go viral showing what they were doing. The fact that you had militarized police trying to enforce health (laughs) Like it sounds crazy now when you go over it, but they didn't want people to see that. They wanted people to see the filtered reports by the mainstream media, which was reporting you had a, 
you know, a handful of crazy conspiracy theorists that were putting us all at risk. They didn't want you to see that police, the state in the name of health were, you know, fully dressed in uh, riot gear with crazy um, uh, armour in, in these bulletproof trucks were kettling, like bringing uh, the, the group of peaceful protesters, forcing them into um, gr- into groups where they one by one picked them off and violently arrested and, and processed. They didn't want people seeing that. So they arrested me thinking that will get and, and tried to move me on, thinking that that will get rid of the problem. But all that did was it attracted worldwide attention. It gave us the audience that they so desperately didn't want us to have. And it create the ba- it created the basis of our campaigns, which were fight the fines and pushing back. And we started all these campaigns off the back of that because people knew we were willing to stand up and fight, and not only from the safety of our studios, but in fact on the street in front of everyone. And that's why we were successful at what we did because we talked to talk, but we also walked the walk. And yeah. I think look, watching it, because I was looking at what's happening across Europe because the UK were actually in a much more favorable position. Uh, we didn't have the levels of evils with other governments, but it was your reporting that actually turned me to what's happening in Australia. And I was able to, from the UK, I was able to catch up with with Australia because of what you were putting out. And you ended up, I think, for many people in Europe, being the go-to person for understanding what was happening uh, down under. Was there was there what was the other response for media were there other alternative media that were putting it out or was it yeah, so there, more was, there was rukshan at the time if you ever watched any of the live feed that was um the rogue wedding reporter who'd um they take they basically stopped him from being able to work so he started live streaming and really giving his he was narrating the the protest craziest protest, but Rukshan's this really calm immigrant is the best way to describe him. Is that the best way? Yeah, he says yes. He's Sri Lankan. He's nah, He was really calm when you watched his – if you go back onto Facebook and he would get 20, 30, 40. At a point, there was like 60,000 people watching live scenes unfolding here in Melbourne because the whole world was – tuned in to see what was happening. So really at the time there was the, the, in Melbourne, there was the two of us, there was me that was doing these um, reports. So we would go out there, capture, talk to people, talk to the police, engage police, uh, you know, at points stand between the police and the protesters and challenge the police when they were overstepping um, and often seeing, uh, you know, cer- certainly uh, after they'd seen us winning in courts and things like that, they, you know, they would s- step back and stand down. Um, and then you had Rukshan that was doing these live, full live streams and just uh, giving his uh, uh, commentary on what was unfolding in front of him. Uh, weren't you banned? Where was it? New Zealand? You were banned from? You were so dangerous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that that, that was. <laughs> They banned me from New Zealand and they used that um, that rubbish, um, I don't know what you want to call it, the, 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 the conviction that didn't meet the threshold. It was an absolute farce. But the funny thing is because it was, it was an anti-government, it was that 
freedom movement. They were running a protest over the weekend and we went down there. Well, we planned to go there. I got to the airport. They stopped me from even boarding the plane. The Qantas staff looked at, you know, they got this alert on my passport. It was the craziest thing. They They said to me they'd never seen it. But the funniest thing from that whole story was as it unfolded, as, you know, the next day the Prime Minister was asked about it, acted like it had nothing to do with their government and, you know, freedom of information. Well, first we got an Interpol leak that proved that they were actually targeting us before even knowing why, if we were coming there. They just knew we were coming to report on this protest and they they wanted to stop us and they were trying to get information. Crim- they were looking for criminal convictions so that they could use it as an excuse to ban us. And then later on, freedom of information requests showed that they were conspiring on the back and everything they were saying was a complete lie. And the real reason they wanted to stop us, in their words, was my propensity of inciting people with opposing views, <laughs> which I've, I've memorized that line because it's so funny to think that a so-called democracy, um, they – they took the, they take themselves who take themselves seriously really used that was their basis to block somebody an Australian so their closest ally um, from coming in because I might incite somebody with other views and uh, you know through all of that it was it was also it was desire it all came out first because the media um, were egging on the 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 government. And I thought at the time, I told people, I go, watch, I'm going to fight this to the end, but they're not going to go to court because what you have to do is you have to, to be able to go to court, you've actually got to get, so I got refused at the border with essentially what's called a visa waiver um, around the world. But to be able to go to court and challenge it, you've got to get refused the actual visa. And I said, when I saw the freedom of information request, I go, there's no way these guys are going to court because I'll have the now the former prime minister on the stand and now she can't lie especially because we have all the evidence so there was i knew they were going to approve it but they dragged their feet for almost a year in the hope that by the time i'm approved i'm not really going to have something to do there and the you know if if they would have let me in that weekend i would have done a few reports um interviewed a few people at the the protest that ended up being a bit of a fizzle uh and I would have been gone in a few days. It would have been whatever. Now, they a year later, when they had no, when they had nothing else they could drag out, they approved it. And I know that they were assuming and hoping that it's all said and done. There's no real reason for me to go back. And if I go back, it's going to be even less of a thing than it was then. Little did they know that I'd f- just finished writing my book. And I thought there could be nowhere more appropriate for me to launch this book than the censorship capital of the West, if not the world. And so that's why I'm launching it there. And I love it because hook, line and sinker, my detractors in New Zealand, they're so angry that I'm coming after being originally banned. They they don't care about all the other reasons. They don't even care that if the tables are turned, if they really want to see people banned because of their political views. They don't realize that the next government that can be conservative will ban their people. They don't care. They're not interested. All they, they're so full of hate. All they wanted to see was me banned. And they're getting so angry about it that they're even saying that my book should be banned. And I'm, I absolutely support their, um, their endeavors. And as long as they keep getting angry about it and talking about it, um, the bet, 
that's better for me because I think when you start to tell people they're not allowed, that's what we saw through COVID. If you tell people they're not going to be allowed to read this book, uh, and this is to your entire audience, you guys are not allowed to read this book. Whatever you do, do not go to rebelfromthestart.com and buy this book. When you tell people they're not allowed to do something, they suddenly want to do it. I'll tell you a little secret. Before COVID, I was a massive germaphobe. I'm still a germaphobe, but I was a massive germaphobe. I remember when COVID first started and, you know, I believe, I fell for the narrative at first. I think, I thought people were crazy who didn't fall for it in the first few, first month or so. And I remember when people started washing their hands and using um, uh, the, the alcohol thing on their hands. And I was so happy because finally the world was catching up with me. Everybody was, you know, clean for once. Um, and then the government said, we've got to start doing this thing. I was like, nah, give me some germs. Give me those germs. I'm not going to wash my hands now because you tell me. <laughs> it's the same idea. So I encourage my New Zealand haters to keep telling people that I'm this bad, evil monster and my book should be burned. In fact, I think they should buy many copies to do an official book burning in New Zealand. It went, I think I read on Rebel News that it had gone to the top uh, in Australia and New Zealand in the first day. That's what negative publicity does, I guess. Absolutely. Yeah, number one, it was for almost a week, number one, Australia and New Zealand. And I'm sure it'll get there again when at close to the date of the launch, which is in August. But uh, to your viewers, watch your space because I don't mind that part of the world. Very well. Just last, I just want to ask you to finish about how it makes you feel about living in Australia because I watch it from the UK and it makes me angry and I'm not living in that totalitarian state. I have friends in Austria and Germany and Europe and, and they've struggled with mandatory lockdowns, mandatory jabs, uh, everything, being cut off from families. You probably had it uh, yeah, literally worse than anyone, um, maybe short of across the water with with horsey face over in in new zealand but how how does that make you feel because it seems as though you whatever's thrown at you it just makes you stronger and more up for the fight yeah look i don't i'm not somebody that um believes in giving up and running away so and it's not i can't leave so maybe i'm just justifying it Talk to me in five years six years when my kids are old enough that i don't i'm not bound to one place but for now i'm glad that i'm here to fight on because uh i think if we let australia fall if we let first victoria and every other state fall and we there is no if if there is no opposition then there is there's going to be nowhere safe in the where's going to be safe where so um it's better to stay and fight for freedom where you are um for the for everyone else Absolutely. Well, let me just bring it up once again. The people can see it. There it is. Rebel from the start. Avi Yemeni setting the record straight. Uh, get it on, as I said, on Amazon or get it uh, directly on the website, uh, rebelfromthestart.com. Uh, Avi, thank you so much for your time. Always great to talk to you. Love what you do. Uh, you're a absolute dynamo there Uh, so thanks for coming on and sharing with our viewers about your book thanks for having me mate till next time if you like what we do sign up to our mailing list 
donate, share, and subscribe to our many platforms at heartsofoak.org. Thank you for listening.